This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Lifespan feminism is tied to something else we very much need right now. A bridge feminism among girls and women of different generations that links us together in a common cause to confront the unfinished business of the women's movement. Valeria Telles interviews Susan J. Douglas, the author of In Our Prime, How Older Women Are Reinventing the Road Ahead. Susan J. Douglas is the Catherine Neefe Kellogg Professor and Arthur F. Thurnau Professor of Communication and Media and former department chair at the University of Michigan. She is the author of the acclaimed In Our Prime, How Older Women Are Reinventing the Road Ahead, Norton, 2020, and Editor's Choice Staff Picks by the New York Times. Celebrity, A History of Fame, NYU Press, with Andrea McDonald, 2019, the Rise of Enlightened Sexism, How Pop Culture Took Us from Girl Power to Girls Gone Wild, Times Books, Henry Holt, 2010, The Mommy Myth, The Idealization of Motherhood and How It Undermines Women, with Meredith Michaels, The Free Press, 2004, Listening In, Radio and the American Imagination, Times Books, 1999, which won the Hacker Prize in 2000 for the best popular book about technology and culture. Where the Girls Are, Growing Up Female with the Mass Media, Times Books, 1994, Penguin, 1995, and Inventing American Broadcasting, 1899-1922, Johns Hopkins, 1987. She received her BA from Elmira College, Phi Beta Kappa, and her MA and PhD from Brown University. She has lectured at colleges and universities around the country and has written for the New York Times, The Nation, In These Times, The Village Voice, Miss, The Washington Post, and TV Guide, and was media critic for The Progressive from 1992 to 1998. Her column, Back Talk, appeared monthly in In These Times until 2017. She has appeared on The Today Show, The CBS Early Show, The Oprah Winfrey Show, Working Woman, CNBC's Equal Time, NPR's Fresh Air, Weekend Edition, The Diane Rem Show, Talk of the Nation, Michael Feldman's What Do You Know, and various radio talk shows around the country. Where the Girls Are was widely praised and chosen as one of the top 10 books of 1994 by National Public Radio, Entertainment Weekly, and the McLaughlin Group. Meet Susan at susanjdouglas.com. Here is the interview with Susan J. Douglas. 
in your own words, who is Susan J. Douglas? Well, I am a feminist media studies scholar. And what I do in that work is try to have people see how the media represents the world to us. And in those representations, how can the media hold us down, but also how can the media inspire us? And the media are the major storytellers of our time. They tell us stories about happiness, success, about gender roles, about self-esteem. And I think it's really important for me to bring the research that I've done to a broader audience so they can think about how we see and think about ourselves in this highly mediated world. Mm. I don't watch TV often. Uh, for some reason, I have refrained from it. And I see what you're speaking about. I have seen, of course, I'm, I'm aware of all that. So I'm wondering who has the power to dictate what is shown, what is not, who are the, the masterminds of the media world? Well, it's a complicated question because on the one hand, you know, the media are controlled by a very small number of huge, often multinational corporations. And, and they are designed to maximize profits. That's their goal. Their goal is not to uplift people. Uh, their goal is not to promote, um, you know, civilized civic discourse. Their goal is to make money. So, you know, we have the kinds of stories that are told to us controlled by a very small number of corporations. Having said that, however, there is a great deal of diversity within those different media outlets. If you think about Netflix, for example, which has, you know, exploded in the last five years, uh, and because it's a paying service, Netflix can tell the kinds of stories that would never get on broadcast television. So network, so uh, Netflix, for example, has shown stories that wouldn't get on uh, television about marginalized groups, about groups that are not always represented. So at the bottom line, especially with cable and with broadcast television, is what programs are going to make a profit? What programs are going to get, you know, the, the greatest number of viewers? And that can lead to incredibly uh, dreadful uh, reality TV shows, for example, <laughs> you know, in which uh, women are pitted against each other. They are depicted as only interested in shopping and backstabbing. I mean, you know, awful value. Values. But on the other hand, you know, we can get programs that satirize what's going on in our country or expose wrongdoings. And uh, so it's, it's a mixed bag, especially with so many media outlets now. How did you become interested in these topics, Susan, in this area? Oh, you know, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, I'm from the first television generation. You know, television raised raised us baby boomers along with our parents and schools and everything else. Um, but I got really interested in the media as something to study when I was a graduate student and I was very influenced by the women's movement and very influenced 
by that movement to look at the media with a much more critical eye. And of course, what activists were pointing out at the time, which was completely true, was how many depictions of women in the media were very sexist and very stereotypical. Women were depicted as irrational, overly emotional, you know, unable to hold certain kinds of jobs, as best suited to only be wives and mothers. They were constantly being held up as sex objects. Most women we saw on television were white, under 35, slim, blonde, and beautiful. And uh, so the women's movement really prompted my interest in studying this from a much more academic uh, perspective and also making that research available to a broader audience beyond the academy. Another question I have for you with the warm-up questions is, what does it look like? What? How would you describe, in general, what an empowered woman looks like? Ooh, <laughs> I think I'd say more, what does an empowered woman feel like? Mm, I um, love that, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. there mm. can be women who might, on first impression, they might be slim, blonde, and beautiful and get dismissed because of that. And in fact, they're smart, they're savvy, they're tough. You know, and on the other end of the spectrum, you can have women being dismissed because they don't fit some corporate ideal of thinness and beauty, and they too are empowered. So I think an empowered woman is somebody who has confidence in her positions, who is not afraid to speak out about those positions and speak out when she sees injustice. An empowered woman believes in herself she nurtures and strengthens her friends and her family. She um, seeks alliances with with men who respect women. And, uh, you know, and I think some empowered women get involved in politics. Other empowered women get involved in their communities, in their schools. But they're out there trying to make the world a better place. Another question that I want to ask you is about the meaning of aging. What does it mean to get older? Yeah, talk to me about this impact of aging in, for women, of course. Well, uh, you know, our culture is positively phobic about aging. And what women are bombarded with all the time, in um, mostly in ads and commercials, is that we're supposed to defy aging. Now, aging is an ineluctable biological process that starts from the minute after we're born. It is not something you can defy. Yet women are supposed to be ashamed of getting older. Uh, we're supposed to be ashamed of the signs that show that we're getting older. And um, so there's, but the interesting thing is many women in ver various studies have reported that they're actually happier than they were 
when they were in their 20s, that many older women are happier than other women who are in their 20s. They have more time for family and friends. They feel very well connected to friends and communities and families. So aging, on the one hand, is something that we're supposed to avoid and is very much almost demonized in our culture. And it makes women, I think, feel very split because on the one hand, we've been socialized since we were young to think aging is terrible. So it's hard not to internalize that and look in the mirror and say, oh no, what happened, right? Um, and, and to feel bad about how we look. And on the other hand, I think aging means that women have gained an enormous amount of experience in life, in work, in relationships that gives women a lot of confidence and comfort. So I would say aging is a multifaceted aspect of our lives that has negative elements and positive elements. And often the positive elements are severely uh, underappreciated and severely underrepresented. I absolutely agree. And that's interesting how subtle these things are. I can remember comments recently from my husband making some chains, natural chains that I usually make. And then he made the comment about, oh, you look younger. And he was much happier that way. I saw this (laughs) smile on his face. So that is interesting. For you, Susan, what are some of the specific gifts that you have gained from getting older, from being older? Um, You know, I have friendships with people of all ages. I have one of my closest friends is 90. Another one of my closest friends is 32. Uh, I think when you live a long life, you have friends you've, if you're lucky, which I have been, I have friends I've known since I was seven years old and we're still very close. And uh, I have friends that I've just met a couple of years ago. So I think having strong friendships is a gift a a lifelong gift. I do think that having confidence in yourself and your work is a real gift that comes with aging. I think that really living in the present, I think, is something that can really come with aging. You know, when you're younger, we're so encouraged to live in the future, live in the future. Uh, You know, what will you be by the time you're 30, by the time you're 40? You know, when you get to be a certain age, you relish living in the present. And I think that's another um, great gift of being older. I'm glad you mentioned that. I love this idea, too, of being present with what is present. Ah, yes. And another open question is the purpose of life. What do you feel the purpose of the human experience is? That's the big question, isn't it? It is, (laughs) Um, And we all have different answers to it. I think to try to do what we love, if we can, to have our work bring us some satisfaction, to have our families bring us satisfaction. I think a really important aspect of life is to try to make the world a better place. You know, even if it's just one person, to try to make the people around us happier, more enlightened, 
more comfortable, more soothed. Mm. I think those are some of the really important things about life. I have another question for you about the idea of balance. Do you have one? How do you see this concept of balance? Well, this is a perennial issue for women. How do women balance all of the pressures in their lives from friends, from family, from from work, from whatever else they're doing in their lives? And I think what is interesting is that younger generations, women now in their 20s and 30s, are pushing much more for more of a work-life balance. For women of my generation, you know, we were often the first to do X, Y, or Z, and we had to prove ourselves. And we didn't, we couldn't just prove ourselves to be equal to men in our line of work. We had to be better, you know, right. just, yeah. just to be seen as equal. And so that meant a lot of juggling. And sometimes you felt that no matter what you were doing, you were letting everybody down. You know, you were letting your child down, you were letting your husband down, you were letting your workplace down. And, um, but I think we paved the way not fully. Uh, there's a lot of work yet to be done to enable younger women to argue more and insist more for balance. And I think one of the things that this dreadful pandemic has done has made a lot of people stand back and think, what do I want from my life? How do I want to balance things just a bit better? So I don't have a good personal answer. I mean, I feel that right now, you know, my my daughter is grown up. Um, we're, we're still in daily touch and I'm still very much a mother. <laughs> But, you know, I do feel like some of the dilemmas that I faced when she was much younger, I don't face anymore. So I have much more balance in my life now. Another question I have is actually, it's an open question. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase unconditional self-love? Oh, well, that is um, that is a movement that I think has really taken off maybe in the past five years or so. Women have been tired of being shamed for their bodies in particular. Women have been tired of being shamed for what they wear or how their faces look, or how they mother their children, and uh, made to feel guilty. I mean, guilt has stipples women's psyches from the time we're little, and women are sick of it. And so I think this move towards unconditional self-love is really urging women to try to jettison as best they can so much of the doubt that has been poured into us, um, particularly by the media, to try to expunge it and really value ourselves for who we are, who we love, who loves us, what we can do, and what we're trying to bring to the world that brings a little bit more joy, insight, and understanding. Like I mentioned earlier, I don't, I'm very careful with everything that I, anything that I read or expose my mind to. So I'm wondering if by doing this, not watching TV and uh, exposing myself only to the topics and to people that support what I believe in, which is to make the world a better place. So I'm wondering if I am immune of the consequences of that, or it doesn't really make any difference 
trying to avoid or deny those things? Well, you know, we live right now in a pretty cruel and toxic environment. And I think a lot of people are trying to sequester themselves from that because they find it debilitating and, you know, depressing. There was a a study that came out about halfway through uh, COVID. So I think it was like in the fall of 2020. And one of the things that happened once the pandemic really started surging in March of 2020 and People were in lockdown by April and people were consuming much more media. They were binging shows. They were watching tons more news. They were on social media a lot more. And some began to feel that that level of consumption was really um, hurting their mental health. And so this study found that people who decided to keep themselves to limit how much time they spent on the media, but especially on the news and social media, reported that their mental health improved. <laughs> so, so I mean, it's a hard question, Valeria, because on the one hand, we need to be aware of what's going on out there, some of it negative and disturbing, Um And on the other hand, we want to protect ourselves from some of that as well, because it's so corrosive to our lives. So, you know, and there is, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with the media. You know, there's stuff I absolutely cannot stand and hate. Um, But there's other stuff that gives me joy and uh, or entertainment. And, you know, as you noted, you know, validates my worldview. And so, you know, it's a mixed bag of being exposed or not being exposed to all the stuff on all of the screens of America bombarding us constantly. Do you have any spiritual practices, Susan? You know, I I don't really, you know, I know that so many of your wonderful guests have talked about their spiritual practices. And I don't really, I mean, I think my spiritual practices are walking my dog in the morning and paying paying attention to nature and the change in the seasons and spending time with and cooking for loved ones. I love cooking for people. I think cooking is an act of love. And um, but beyond those kinds of everyday things, I don't really. I love that because that's how I see whatever we call spirituality to be is just being in the moment and doing what we do. There's nothing that's not spiritual. So that's interesting that you gave me that answer. (laughs) Simple things. And my last warm-up question is about freedom. What is freedom to you? What is to be free? Oh, what a great question. (laughs) Well, in the society we live in right now, I think, sadly, to be free is to not be financially insecure. To be free is to not be food insecure, to not be housing insecure. All of those things, you know, are crucial to just having some modicum of a sense of freedom and autonomy. And then, of course, to be free is to try, you know, in on a more of an inner sense, is to try and not have all of the little 
voices, the little demons that come to us at four in the morning to not have them torture us so much. You know, I think that's freedom too, to be able to expunge those. But uh, I do think that freedom, you know, I don't want to say is the right to do whatever we want, whenever we want. I don't think that's freedom because doing that can impinge on other people's happiness and other people's security and safety. So I would not include that, although I know many people do in their definition of freedom. What do you love most about being in a human body? (laughs) (laughs) Moving it. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. Moving it, you know, uh, I mean, you know, we live in such an ableist culture and I feel every day what a privilege it is to be able to move my body, to be able to exercise, to be able to walk my dog, you know, to be able to cook a meal. Yeah, so, and to be patient with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's a big one. (laughs) I love how simple, um, yet not simple you are. So you wrote the book, In Our Prime, how older women are reinventing the road ahead. Talk to me about how you became a writer and the main inspiration and intention of writing your book. As I told you earlier, I got very interested in the media as a result of part of the women's movement and how women were depicted in the media. And my first book was actually on the early history of radio, but my second book was on the representations of women in the media from really the immediate post-World War II period up until the early 1990s. And I wanted to think about and write about how baby boom women were shaped and socialized by the media. And there was an autobiographical element to that. And uh, my next book was on motherhood in the media because when I had a baby, I just felt surrounded by incredibly punishing images of perfect motherhood that nobody could really achieve. And then my next book on the images of women, I wrote when my daughter was a teenager and I was really seeing the differences in the media representations on offer to her, which were often about consumerism and being hot. uh, And the ones that were on offer for me, which which were more aspirational about that being a successful career person. And then I became a woman of a certain age. And I looked around and there was virtually nothing written about how older women were being represented in the media. And I thought that was kind of shocking. And so I wanted to write about that. But in doing that, I, you know, began to do research and I found, and I also felt in my own person that we were at a turnstile moment, that on the one hand, there were still plenty of ageist stereotypes about there, out there about older people. And ageism is harder on women because women live longer and women continue to be judged first and foremost by our appearances. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there were celebrities, women politicians, and everyday women who were saying no to those stereotypes, who were 
challenging them and saying we're not going to be typecast by these outdated notions of what an older person should be. So I wanted to write about that tension and that turnstile moment in our culture where we are having this collision between outdated stereotypes and a new invigorated way of thinking about aging in our culture and particularly for women. And speaking of that challenging these stereotypes, what is feminism and what is not feminism, Susan? Well, I'm going to give you another one of my simple answers. (laughs) Feminism is believing in equality of opportunity and responsibility for all people and particularly for women. That's what it is. There have been so many stereotypes came out to tarnish feminists and feminism, really beginning, you know, in the 1970s that, you know, feminists hated men, that feminists had no sense of humor, that feminists were strident. Um, Feminists, you know, hated the family. Uh, They were anti-fashion. I mean, all of this you know, ridiculous stuff, you know, that feminists didn't have a sense of humor. I felt it's really important in my book, books to be funny Uh, (laughs) because (laughs) a feminist cannot get from one end of the day to the, to the next, um, without a sense of humor. Mm. And, um, so that's what feminists are. They are fighting for an equal playing field and for equality. And when you have more equality for women, you actually can have more equality for men, especially around emotional expression and ties among friends and family. Another question I have is about women supporting women. Is that something that it's changing at this time or are we still far from it? Again, it's a mixed bag. I have been very sorry to hear accounts of some women saying they have not been supported by other women, that they've been undermined by other women, which I think is so sad and wrong. I have really tried in my friendships and in my work to support other women and especially younger women. So I think it varies. There are some women who are passionately devoted to supporting other women. They're real, they really are in all kinds of spheres of life. And there are other women who don't do that so much and can see other women as competition. But there are some studies that have shown that women managers, and again, this is Overall, you know, this is general. There's obviously women who don't conform to this, but women managers seek to be more collaborative. They seek to uh, seek out different points of view and to build consensus um, and to try to build a workplace environment in which everybody, you know, more people feel valued and included. Yeah. And with that in mind, I do have another question for you about this the idea of what is to be a woman. I asked you earlier about what is to be an empowered woman. But in general, how do you define what is to be a woman? Because it's not limited to gender, right? We don't limit to that, I would say. But yeah, talk to me for a moment about them, the idea of what is to be a woman. Well, that's a tough question because, I mean, it sounds like a simple question, but it 
it, but it's not. It's a hard question because there are ways in which you could talk about being a woman that essentialize certain kinds of female traits that not yeah. all women have. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> um, yes. You know, so you could say, oh, to be a woman <laughs> is to be nurturing. Well, right. not all women are nurturing. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, to be a woman is to be, you know, have high emotional intelligence. Well, not all women have high emotional intelligence. So it's a tough question, Valeria. I mean, I I think there are lots of different ways of being a woman. And of course, that question, as you suggested in the very way that you asked it, is not restricted to um, biology, you know, and how people have been born. And so there are multiple ways now that people are constructing what it means to be a woman. And I would hope for more acceptance and tolerance in the multiple ways that women can be women. Mm, yes, uh, beautifully said. <laughs> yes, yes. I love your wisdom. I love how open you are. I love everything about you. Thank you, Susan, for being you. Thank <laughs> it's very <you>. inspiring. <laughs> and I have a few more questions for you, the ending questions. Before that, would you like to add anything else or read a passage in your book? Oh, I don't have the book right in front of me, but I guess what I would say is people have found the book to be a manifesto, a call to arms against gendered ageism and against invisibility for older women. It's a call to arms to see that everyday women, as well as celebrities as varied as Jane Fonda and Meryl Streep and Oprah Winfrey, were all saying no to stereotypes about older women. And we are reinventing this stage of our lives in very affirming and powerful ways. Thank you so much again for doing what you do and being who you are. Thank you, Susan. My last questions are, let's see, I have to choose. I have too many here. I'll ask you this one. How do you define success these days? What is to be successful to you? I think to be successful is to be happy in your life. And that can be happy in your relationships. It can be happy with your family. It can be happy at work. But I think to be successful is to be happy with yourself, to be proud of yourself, and to push yourself to do better. And another question I have is, what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? Ooh, yikes. <laughs> Save these toughies for the end. Hardest thing I had to learn about myself? Oh, let's see. I have a couple, actually. Because I value friendship so much, sometimes some people can perceive me as a bad friend. And sometimes, you know, friendships rise and they ebb. And some friendships, you know, disappear. And for all kinds of reasons. So I think it's been hard to think that sometimes I've had to let friendships go or maybe have been a bad friend. I think the other 
things I've learned about myself is that I can start things and not finish them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why um, not? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I think <laughs> I can be hard on myself and I don't think that's healthy. And you talk about friendship in a very, um, in a lovely way. Uh, and then you make me think about what makes a good friend? What are the characteristics, the traits behind that idea? A good friend is a good listener. A good friend shares with you their highs and their lows. A good friend has your back always. A good friend takes care of you when you need taken care of. A good friend cheers you up when you need it. A good friend laughs with you. A good friend stays in touch, stays in touch. Because if you can't stay in touch, none of those other things can happen. And I think staying in touch with friends is uh, foundational to everything else. And that also makes me think about how many good friends can we have? Because it requires attention, right? It requires time. And I would just say two, three, <laughs> the most. <laughs> I don't want to limit that, but <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. no, it does take time, but it's yeah. time well spent. And, you know, oh, yeah. I've also had friendships where I was in very close touch with people for a while. And then for a variety of reasons, moving around the country, marriages, having children, you know, that we've really lost touch, but we always knew each other was out there. And knowing that matters too. trusting your friends to know that they're out there and they know you're out there. And so when you reconnect, it's like time never passed. Mm, I love that too. Yeah, that definitely has been the, the case with me, with some of my friends. Yes. And my last question is, what are three things you wish everyone to experience before they lose the body, before they die? Friendship, love, travel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> ah, that sounds great to me. <laughs> seeing um, the world, seeing the world and mm. learning about other cultures. Yeah, it's it's so enlivening. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. A billion times again to that. So before we say goodbye, I want to tell you how grateful I, I am to have met you and to be in your presence. It's very empowering. And I love what you do, how you do it and uh, how genuine you are. Thank you so much, Susan, again. Well, thank you so much. It was really, it's been an absolute delight talking to you. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Um, I have a website. It's all one word, Susan J. Douglas. Uh, and so most of what's about me is up there. Wonderful. I'll have the link on your podcast profile, too. Thank you again, and we'll talk soon. Bye for now, Susan. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Susan J. Douglas and her work, please visit SusanJDouglas.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.